At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. We are committed to being gospel-focused and motivated while we are biblically holistic and humble. As a church family, we want to be in and in the community while being a place that is multi and next generational. As we reflect Jesus in our words and actions, we are united in and honoring diversity. And in all of this, we will prioritize relational and missional discipleship. As we look to the next generation, we have a loving, selfless, always present, and ever caring example in Jesus. Let's be that in our community. So there are words in our society that the instant you see them, you realize this word has become a polarizing word. For instance, (laughs) or what about this one? Exactly. (laughs) What about this one? Right? This should not be a polarizing word. Crocs are ridiculous. You shouldn't wear them. I don't know why they're coming back into style. Thank you. That just also means I'm old. Um, And what about this word? See, some words carry different meaning for different people depending on their cultural background, uh, depending on their personal experience. And there's words like this one, that should unite us, but for some reason, they end up being polarizing. They end up dividing us. When we decided that we were going to take the word diversity and we were going to highlight it in our core values, we knew that we were choosing a risky word, but it's a good word. It's, it's a word that should unite Christians, even though it has a tendency to divide, not just in our culture, but in the church. I mean, look at the definition of the word diversity. Diversity is the condition of having or being composed of differing elements. In other words, diversity is simply taking a bunch of things that are necessarily different and putting them together in such a way that they become a new thing. And this is a very biblical idea. It's why we say in our new core values that we want to, as a church, be united in and honoring diversity. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a journey through the Bible from the very first book in the Bible to the very last book of the Bible, and we're going to see multiple and varied types of diversity, pictures of diversity on the pages of the Scripture itself. So let's start in Genesis. In the very first chapter of the Bible— It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so right here on the, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we have not just one, but two pictures of diversity in these two verses. Here's the first one. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Being created in the image of God means a lot of things. And lots of books have been written and sermons have been preached about what it means to be created in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. But one of the things that it means to be created in the image of God is that God is himself diverse. As Christians, we believe in something called the Trinity, which means that if you're new to Christianity, this one's trippy. We worship one God who is one and that he exists eternally in three persons. And I know the Trinity is kind of a mind-numbing concept, but this is where diversity as a Christian ideal begins. It begins with what we call the Godhead. That he's one God that exists eternally in three persons. God is one, he is indivisible, and he exists in three persons eternally at the same time. This is my favorite image to try to describe the Trinity because it's so mind warpy, but I love this. This basically reminds us that the Son of God, Jesus, is not the Holy Spirit, but he is God. (laughs) That he is not the Father, but he is God. That the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, but the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Holy Spirit is God. This is about as close as we can get to an image. And and what we see right there on the very first pages of Scripture is that each human that has ever existed is created in the image of God. Just like each person in the Trinity is equally God, and they are diverse, they are unique, they have different roles and relationships with one another, we are different and unique and have different roles and relationships with one another. That means amongst other things, that every person you will ever meet in your lifetime reflects the image of God in some way to this world. That was the first thing. The second picture of diversity we have in these two verses is this part where it says, so God created man in his own image. So he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And there is a precision in this language. God created humankind with diversity, male and female, and unity, they were created in his image. Men and women are necessarily different. They aren't interchangeable. Both women and men carry in them the image of God, and and for there to be a full expression of the image of God, we need each other. That's diversity, it's right there on the first chapter. Now, we can keep tracing our way through Genesis. You get to Genesis chapter 12, and you see that God chooses a people for himself, the nation of Israel. And this is part of the promise he makes them in Genesis 12. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Think about what this means. Too often, ancient Israel, just like the modern church today, thought that they existed for themselves, that they existed for people who were like them. But part of the very creation of Israel centered on this idea that they were to be and that they would be a blessing to all people on the earth. Now, it's notable that Israel is often warned about intermingling the people around them, specifically in the promised land. And what do we do with that? 
Well, that warning was centered around abandoning their faith to worship false gods. That was the main concern. They were not commanded to avoid people who were not like them or to look down on people who were not like them. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Part of the law that God gave to Israel that was to, to, to rule and, and guide them for how they were to live their life was in a book called Leviticus. And let me read a chunk of Leviticus. It says, when an alien resides with you in your land, and by the way, alien does not mean Captain Marvel, Transformers, Little Green Man, E.T., anything like that. That doesn't mean what it means. A literal definition of the word, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Let me just keep reading it. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So let me give you a literal definition of the word alien in this context. Here it is. An alien is a person who comes from a foreign country who does not owe allegiance to your country. Check out the two pieces of that definition of that word. Someone who is not from your country and owes your country nothing, does not owe your country anything. Do you, do you, is there another word that we possibly use in our culture that is different? It's the word immigrant. The law for the Israelites, where they were to treat the immigrant in their society as if they were a citizen. They were to love them as they loved themselves, to treat them the way they treated their own people. That's another picture of diversity. Now, in the next uh, chapter, or the next book, book of Numbers, it's one of my favorite stories in, in, the, in the Old Testament. And I just want to read the punchline right at the beginning because it starts with the punchline. In, in Numbers 12, 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron criticized uh, Moses uh, because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a, a Cushite woman. And there's a lot baked into that little verse, so let's just kind of unpack it for a second. Miriam and Aaron were Moses' older siblings. You remember Moses? You know, Moses, right? Like, that's, that's the guy, right? So Moses, his big uh, sister and big brother, Miriam and Aaron, were mad at him for something. You see what it is? They were mad because he married someone, a particular type of person, a Cushite. What's Cush? Well, Cush is the nation that was just south of Egypt. It was the Cush Empire just south of Egypt in, in Africa. It is described in another place in Jeremiah. It says this, Jeremiah 13, um, 23, I think. It says this, it says, can a Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? If so, you might be able to do it as good as you are instructed in evil. What does that mean? Well, he was using an image everyone would know. He says, picture a Cushite in your mind. Can they change their skin? Why would he use that imagery? Because Cushites were known for their very, very dark skin. That's what they were known for. Moses, the ethnic Jew, was married to a black African woman. And by the way, uh, there's a famous painting from the 1600s of Moses and his wife. I love this painting. I want you to just look at this and, as we think for a second. Weren't the Israelites commanded not to intermarry with the people and the nations around them? Well, the prohibition wasn't as broad as we tend to think it was. It was about the surrounding nations in the promised land specifically where the Israelites had moved into where there was a concern that they would adopt the, um, the, the, the gods and the false worship of the people in the, the surrounding areas in the promised land. It wasn't a broad prohibition and it wasn't a prohibition of interracial marriage. 
And let me tell you my favorite thing about this painting. Moses' wife in this painting is dressed like not an Israelite, but a Cushite. In fact, the painter, I think rightly so, did a couple things. First, implied that she kept her culture. That her culture didn't change. She didn't turn into an Israeli in her culture. And then the second thing is, I think this is kind of cool, is she's actually portrayed as a queen. And there is a little bit of debate. Some people think, and I'm not sure I can go there fully in the text, that he married a, a Cushite queen. I don't know if that's the case, but I do love this painting. So here's the question. Was Moses in the right marrying a Cushite woman? Well, let's ask God. This is the great part of the story. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Doesn't he also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the planet. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. God called a meeting. You three to the tent now. So the three of them went out, and then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, you know, drama, stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. You too, come here. And when the two of them came forward, he said, listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I may make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. <laughs> he is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly. And not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the Lord's anger burned against him and he left. And here's the best part. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, resembling snow. I don't want to read too much into this. But God's punishment to Miriam is he made her really, really white. You can't read too much into that. But they were upset because he married a Cushite woman. And this was God's response. All right, let's just jump to the New Testament. We could do a lot of these, but we got to keep flying. Uh, New Testament, Acts 1. Uh, you may remember from a couple uh, months ago, we looked at the early church in Acts 1. Uh, but I want to go back to the passage where Jesus said, this is how I'm launching my church. He's like, I'm going to launch my church. This is what's going to happen. This is it. Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you remember, if you were here a couple months ago, what happened next is in chapter 2, people from every nation under heaven became Christians after the very first sermon that was Christian sermon that was preached in Acts. Every nation under heaven, uh, th this blessing that God had promised to Abraham happens through the preaching of the word about Jesus in Acts 1. But by the time we get to Acts 6, just five chapters later, we now have tension between two of the ethnic groups. Check this out. Acts 6 verse 1. It says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So here's what happened. The early church quite rapidly organized themselves. You see this in the first couple chapters of Acts. To taking care of the needs of the people, not only in their community, but in the surrounding community. Not only in their church, but in the surrounding community. They began to help people and take care of their needs. It's what Christians do. 
And what happened by the time we get to Acts 6 is they were taking care of widows um, who presumably had nobody else to take care of them. And so the church was taking care of them. And the widows in the story were all Jewish. That's actually important detail. Some of them were Hellenistic, which means that they were Greek. So they were Greek ethnically, and yet they had become Jews. So presumably at some point before the time of Christ, they had given themselves over to Judaism, so they became Jews, right? And then there were the Hebraic Jews. They were the ethnically Jewish Jews, right? And so these two sets of widows, the, the Greek Jews and the Jewish Jews, <laughs> um, they, were, they were all needed to be taken care of, but somehow the distribution of food to take care of them was prioritizing, was discriminating against the Greek Jews. And so we have tension. And presumably all of these women have now become Christians. We don't know that for sure, but it seems likely that they had all become Christians. They were all part of the church family now. And the one group was being discriminated against. And so they went to the apostles and said, listen, we're not getting, our widows are not being taken care of the way the ethnically Jewish women are. And so the apostles picked a team to take care of this. And it's actually quite significant when you look at the team that they picked. Uh, verses five and six. It says this uh, proposal, please, the whole company, they said these are the guys who are going to take care of this. They chose uh, Stephen, a, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, a Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, you know, from Lion King, um, <laughs> Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch, and they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, that just may seem like a meaningless list of names to us. But the majority of the people that they selected, if not all of the people they selected, to handle the discrimination problem against the Greek widows were Greek. In fact, the last guy, the guy from Antioch, is probably mentioned that he was from Antioch because he was probably not even a Jew. This guy was probably a Greek who had become a Christian. He was not even a Jew. So what they did is they chose leaders from the underrepresented community to handle the discrimination issue toward the underrepresented community. I think that's significant. What we see here is what part of the blessing that God had promised to Abraham. That, 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 that through the Jewish line, through the Jewish people, ultimately through the Savior Jesus, who is Abraham's seed, there would be a blessing to the entire world. This is how Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians chapter 3. He says, you know that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance and God would justify, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are part of Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. So let me say it as plainly as I can. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, God's desire is that his people will be a blessing to you. And he invites you to join his family. All it takes is faith in Jesus, who is God's son, Abraham's seed, 
And when you believe in him, you become God's child, Abraham's seed. And in Jesus, you become part of the blessing that God promised to Abraham through Jesus to every people in the world. And when, and when Paul says there's no Jew or Greek, male or female, is he saying those things no longer exist, that they're a race? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that in Christ, God is taking a bunch of necessarily different things and he's putting them together in such a way that they become a new thing. It's diversity. Let me read a, a chunk of Ephesians because just one verse won't do. So I'm going to read a whole chunk from Ephesians 2. Just listen to this whole thing. Paul writes this. He says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So for those of you who are not Jewish, he's talking about you. You're Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. In other words, they talked down to you. There was a time when they talked smack about you because you were different, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing walls of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one man out of the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near for through him we both have access to the one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, obviously what Paul's talking about here is two categories of people that the dividing wall had fallen down between Jews and Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, okay? That's what he's talking about. But there's a huge implication. If Jesus is the peace between Jews and everyone else, that means he is the peace between everyone else. All who were far from God are brought near by faith. Foreigners and strangers... Now, he says, become citizens and saints. That those who were divided now become one household, one temple. I love that imagery. See, because the temple that God is, is describing is the church. And, and I don't mean the building. This building ain't the temple, right? It's the people. We are the temple of God. We are the household of God. When we talk about the household of God, it's never a building. It's never any, this, this building, one guy used to say, that this isn't the church until the church shows up. That's what he's talking about. The people, the household of God. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets built the foundation, he says, right? So the apostles and prophets, they wrote the Holy Scriptures. They gave them to us. They built the foundation. And the rest of us are the house. And we together are the church. We all have the spirit of God, the ghost of God living in us. My friend Leonce, who is a pastor in Atlanta, he likes to describe the church as something that is transcultural. And I love that imagery. It's way better than multicultural as an image for the church. You see, the church is like, think of a tapestry or a mosaic 
or an orchestra. Each individual thread or piece of stone or instrument is beautiful on its own, uniquely beautiful on its own. If it wasn't beautiful on its own, being put together with the others wouldn't make it beautiful, right? If every thread was blue, then you'd just have a blue blanket. You wouldn't have a mosaic. If every stone was gray, you would have a driveway, right? If every orchestra member was a triangle, I don't know what you'd have, but it'd be really annoying, right? But when you take differently, uniquely beautiful pieces and you put them together, you have something new that is even more beautiful. But in order to see it, you have to step back from it. You have to transcend it to see its beauty. And we will get glimpses of that beauty here and now, but we won't see the whole thing until one day in glory we look down. That's why I love that image of transcultural. Each one of our individual pieces of culture, how we're wired, our individual culture, our cultural experience is added to everyone else's to make something beautiful. We don't take away, like he said, the Jewishness or the Gentileness or the maleness or the femaleness or the Cushiteness. It's all put together to make something beautiful. There's this picture in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, in Revelation 7 that says this. John says, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I've read that passage a thousand times if I've read it once. But back in February, I read this passage again in a specific context, and it struck me in a new way. So I read it that day when I was preaching in a tiny little church in Brazil. I was gone for a couple weeks. I went down to Brazil and spent a couple weeks in Brazil because we helped plant churches in Brazil. And I was preaching in a church in a group called the Quilombo in northern Brazil. So here's a picture of the church building I got to preach in. And this is the whole church. And after I got done preaching in northern Brazil... I went down to southern Brazil, and I, I, I spoke at a church planting conference, and this is a whole bunch of the pastors at this church planting conference down there. And everywhere that I went, I needed a, a translator. In fact, um, there's one guy, he's not in this picture. He was, probably, he was in the last picture. Um, he and I have become texting buddies, and we text three or four times a week, um, but we need Google Translate because he doesn't speak a lick of English, and my Portuguese is limited to my name, which actually is Noel, which means Papa Noel, which means Santa Claus. So, um, uh, so um, that's, that's it. That's all the Portuguese I know. Um, and so it was in that context, as I was in small churches, large churches, small cities, large cities, in the Quilombo, um, in, in downtown um, Sao Paulo, which is like New York City, and I always needed a translator. That's when I read the scripture again. Let me read it again. Just listen to this. After this, I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what I saw. Every nation, tribe, people, and language crying out 
in a loud voice, what lang- how, do you, how did he know it was every language? Because every language was crying out. And yet he knew what they were saying. He knew that they were all declaring salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Presumably, they were all crying out in their own language, and yet everyone understood them. And, and so I, I got to one of these churches, and, and I said, I can't wait for the day that, that you can sing in Portuguese, and I can sing in English, and we, we won't have to have a translator to know that we're singing the same song. In one of the churches I was in, there was a guy translating from English to Portuguese, and someone else translating from Portuguese to Brazilian Sign Language. And then afterward, this woman and I had this conversation, and it was like this, because I had to talk to him, and he talked to her, and she talked to him. And we had this wonderful conversation, and I said to her, I cannot wait to the day one day in glory when you're going to speak to me in Brazilian Sign Language, and I'm going to understand. This is what the gospel does. It brings necessarily different things together and makes them something beautiful. So here are some implications of this that I've been just wrestling with personally. According to the 2020 census, Ingham County is the second most diverse county in the state of Michigan. My neighborhood is a great example. I live in Holt. So when you think of Holt, you probably don't think diversity. Maybe you do. But in my neighborhood, there's our house, and our house is um, multi-ethnic. My wife is Korean, and next to us is a retired a white couple. Next to them is a multi-generational family um, that is white and Japanese, and lots of their family kind of coming in and out there. Um, across from them is a, a white uh, widower. Next to him is a, a, a mixed-race couple, black and white, and then a Vietnamese family, a Hmong family, a single white lady, and then right next to us, a new family just moved in, a a black family. That's Holt. That's how our society is. And the simple truth is, our society assumes that sort of diversity in every space they go into, and it's one of the few places where the society is ahead of the church on this. This is why we need to be committed to diversity. This is what our new diversity statement says at RIF. We want to be united in and honoring diversity. And that means, created in the image of God, we recognize the dignity of all people. We are a diverse community united around the gospel of Jesus. We do not desire conformity or uniformity, but the full expression of our individual and cultural life experiences woven together by our common salvation. We choose to live with a broader cultural perspective than our own. What we are saying here is that we recognize that every person is created in the image of God. And because of that, they deserve respect and dignity. We also understand that we all have life experiences that are different from one another. Some of those are individual, some of those are cultural. And make sure you hear this next bit really clearly. Every one of us carries individual and cultural beauty and baggage right? There are things that we bring to the table that should be celebrated, and there's things that we bring to the table that need to be reformed in light of the gospel. Let me give you two examples. 
I, I grew up in a godly home with awesome parents who were born and raised in Detroit in the heart of the civil rights era. The first four years of my life, I lived in, in Detroit, and my earliest memories include a, a black teenage girl standing on the street corner playing the violin. I fell in love with it so much, I became a violinist. I'm putting that out there. I'm sorry if you never knew that. I don't do it anymore. Played the violin for like 15 years because she did, right? My godmother's black, all that. But we moved to St. John's when I was four. And so I grew up in a, in a culture that was not very diverse at all. And pretty much our only diversity was whether we listened to Guns N' Roses or Depeche Mode. That was about it, right? <laughs> Two white bands. Um, and so in my mind, I, I kind of picked up this idea that racism had been solved, that it was no longer an issue. I had some little memories from when I was a kid, but that was about it. And then my freshman year at Michigan State, I was assigned three black roommates, and I learned that I carried some cultural baggage I needed to work through because I saw racism toward them up close and personal. That's some baggage I got to work through. Fast forward to last weekend, and we saw a picture of beauty. If you were here at Riv you know that we recognize Young Yi as one of our pastors, and his Korean culture was on full display for all of us. He bowed to the congregation. His message was filled with honor toward his family, to his home church, and to Riv. It was culturally beautiful, and he was not telling us to become him. He was being himself in our cultural environment. What we desire at Riv is a place where our diversity can be on full display, where we don't have to hide our individual or cultural beauty, but we can fully live it out. And we want to be a place where our differences are woven together into something that is even more beautiful when all those diverse, beautiful parts are put together. And this will change, mean a mindset change for many of us. I've been thinking about a lot of this lately. We need to see, for instance, differences as a feature of the church, not a bug. That's why we say that we choose to live with a broader cultural perspective than our own. And that includes not just things like race and age and gender, but things like artistic preferences, music style, dress, preaching style, worship preferences. You worship with your hands up or in your pockets like everybody else does, right? But to pull that off, we as a church family need to be better at having diverse voices speaking into what we do as a church and to speaking into how we do it. That's what we've been working on this whole series. Having men and women and olders and youngers and racially diverse and differently abled people all be able to be platformed and help us learn about this stuff. And here's the thing, it'll take time. Some of the stuff that we're rolling out, we've been working on for years. It's a grind, and it's worth every second of the grind. And there's a big reason for that, and I've already read it. In Galatians 3, verse 28, when it says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we are united in and honoring diversity, we tell people, about a united and diverse God who made us one in Jesus Christ. We live as ambassadors of a coming diverse kingdom with a vast multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Recently, we pulled together a diverse group of Rivites uh, to talk about their individual and cultural experience with church. 
Um, and on Tuesday, we're going to release the whole video. The original recording was about two hours long. <laughs> and they just discussed their experience. I want to encourage you, when that comes out, grab a beverage of your choice and sit down and watch the whole thing. Um, it's amazing. But I want to do is I want to let them conclude my message with a clip from that conversation. And no, it's not two hours long. But enjoy this clip from that conversation. All right, y'all. Hey, we're all going to start uh, by all taking just a few minutes just to share who you are, share your background, share the culture that you were raised in your community. And uh, yeah. The community that I grew up in was predominantly Korean American. Immigrant generation, so my parents' generation, um, along with just a lot of second gen, uh, which so I'm considered second gen, grew up in a very small Korean Southern Baptist church. We moved all around the country because of my dad's job, and so I've lived in Texas and Metro Detroit and uh, Florida. But in all of those places that we moved, we kind of lived in the same place, which is the suburbs. <laughs> so I, I was the one. You know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. I know what you mean. So yeah. uh, that's where I was my entire life, whether that was Texas, here, you know, wherever. Hearing you say that kind of breaks my heart. So mm. um, I'm excited to hear your story, Dewey. So I grew up actually an only child um, and just with my mom. My parents divorced when I was two, and I was in Metro Detroit as well, Commerce Township. For me, like, it's community that really has shaped my faith because to not have like siblings, I always wanted mm. that. Some of that background shaped mm. my decision, to even just like to pursue being in church community. Yeah. I was born in uh, the Dominican Republic. If you guys have seen Encanto, that is 100% <laughs> like the Hispanic oh. family. Like <laughs> that is exactly how it is, is that there is this strive to always be perfect, to be the good descendant, always making sure that the people above you are happy and proud of what you are doing. And that is not who I was. Mm. For church background, we would go to Spanish churches, black churches, um, you know, predominantly white churches. So there was never like a home church that we really had, which kind of just led me to be that weird person like Dewey, right? That the one in every sort of situation that I was in, it was never, um, oh, this is where I fit. It was just always different people. I was adopted at a young age. I was born out of wedlock and to a child um, in Korea, South Korea, and my parents adopted me when I was six months old. I've stayed in the same place my entire life, which is Williamston. Yeah. It was really hard for me to see myself as anything but a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I was that one, you know, that I molded myself into what my friends were. And to this day, I have a hard time seeing myself as a Korean. Mm-hmm. I grew up for the most part in Canton, Michigan. And I went to uh, a super small school. Uh, I think I graduated with 46. And it wasn't until much later that I really understood, like, what are the gifts of um, diversity and what are... Um, How can we celebrate that and celebrate that in someone else and not just look for the things that make me unique, but to like celebrate the ways that um, our community is unique. So how would you say your life experience has kind of informed your own faith? Growing up, I had to, I was dealing with this juxtaposition of knowing that I'm loved and accepted, but then in this space that I live in around me, like I'm wrong. Mm. Like, people say, well, I want you to grow up. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a police officer. I wanted to be white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I wanted to be. 
like it was a kind of a defense mechanism for me. Whereas if I can attack myself and my race before you mm -hmm. can, mm -hmm. I now have that power. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now there's nothing you can say that's worse than what I've already said to myself over and over again. And like the worst part about it is that it worked. Right. It literally worked it yeah. in the sense that I was accepted or tolerated. I don't really know which one it is, to be honest. Um, but I definitely wasn't celebrated. Mm. Mm. This wasn't um, a conversation that I always had to think about. Um, and I could opt in and opt out as much as I wanted as like a white man, it's very easy for me to like find any kind of community where I like mm -hmm. feel very comfortable and not disrupted. But I feel like that's what the gospel challenges me to do is to press into those spaces, um, to like use this the the grace to mess up and to like set that before community that I trust, um, set that before the Lord, um, and to like let go of things that maybe have brought me a lot of safety and comfort um, in order for the gospel to shine through. I, I love that especially the last part, because I think what the gospel does compel you to do is to branch out from your inner circle, right? And to be challenged and to be, um, you know, to ask for forgiveness when you make mistakes and whatnot. And I think, yeah, just what you said, man, it's just, it's so powerful. Yeah. And I see it, I genuinely see it. Like, it's not all talk from Jordan. Like, I actually <laughs> see it, you know, with him. If, if we allow ourselves to be a little uncomfortable and experience other people's backgrounds like we are here, I think that changes things and allows you to celebrate the fact that we are different. Yes, we're all made in God's image, mm -hmm. but we're all made in God's image in a unique way right. that allows us to bring those things to one another. And if we embrace that ability to be uncomfortable and allow ourselves a little bit of that space, that gives us so much more room to look at things and say, I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from and, and be able to talk about those things in a way that truly allows people to be seen. Yeah. 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 If I can carry the weight of discomfort by going into somewhere that someone else is comfortable, if I can enter that and feel uncomfortable, but go with Jesus, like, I just feel like I can, I can do, I can carry the weight of the discomfort or the displacement so that they don't have to. Mm. There's been something sticking in my mind in this conversation that is just, what would it look like for the church to celebrate people instead of tolerate them? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and that's coming, Dewey, from what you said. I mean, in your own experience of like, yeah. I, I never felt celebrated. Mm. I felt tolerated. I, that has never come into my mind <laughs> growing up in a, in a white community, being a part of a predominantly white church. Um, so I'm curious how, how the posture of Riverview churches could be, we're going to celebrate people instead of tolerate them. There is something about your blackness, about your Asianness, even about your whiteness for our white brothers and sisters that you can bring to the table that sanctifies one another. Mm -hmm. And I think the beauty of the gospel is that it is the thread that ties us all together. And that's the thing about the gospel that I definitely think uh, gets misconstrued in a lot of white American evangelical spaces is that, well, the gospel like washes away your color and washes mm. away your ethnic background yeah. when really, actually, the gospel is more so of a thread that ties us all together, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. mm -hmm. which is why I think it's, it's 
important for everyone to embrace the ethnic background that the Lord has made you in and then bring that to the table. Mm -hmm. yeah. If we are both created in God's image and we are different, then there's like a piece of the image of God that's lacking if I'm the only person represented. Mm -hmm. um, that is an mm -hmm. incomplete picture of who God yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And if we just continuously want to like know God more by bringing people in to hear their stories and, yes. and the things that God has taught them, like we can do, like that's a culture change. That's like a permanency thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, what we have been praying for. And that's, I think, Jordan, getting into the, the question of how does the gospel mm -hmm. <laughs> inform this area of a church when it comes to diversity or when it comes to being united in that and embracing that? I think that starts with relationships. Like, are you willing to be intentional with people and dig in and be yeah. uncomfortable together. I think right. that's what draws people in is your willingness to like sit with people in their story and like let them see, feel heard, <laughs> feel seen, yeah. feel accepted. Hey, you just told me that, but you're accepted here because of what Christ has done for us. Like that's what unites us. If you really just root into your to a church, recognize that there is diversity and diversity is needed <laughs> and needing to be celebrated and talked about within the church. Like yeah, you're going to have those uncomfortable times, but they're so needed, like we've talked yeah. about. There's a passage, it's the, what's happening, it's like after, like Jesus tells the disciples, like, I'm going to go do the thing. And, uh, you know, Jesus is like, well, you're going to, you guys are going to go, you guys are going to go and spread message and all that kind of stuff. And Peter's like, well, how are they going to know that, like, we're like the real, yeah. like, right. Jesus Christ OGs? Like, how, how, do, they, how do they know? <laughs> and, and Jesus was like, they're going to know about how you love them. Mm -hmm. if the evidence is in our community that, holy cow, look at what Riv does for everyone mm -hmm. as we invite everyone. That's what that looks like. That's it. And how we're, the, the proof is in how we're loving people. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to invite you guys to all stand right now. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to sing some more. Um, but I just want to pray uh, for this specific area that being united in and honoring diversity would be something we would be known for. Um, that we would be known for people who invite everyone to know and love Jesus with us as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. So would you guys uh, pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, the picture of diversity in Scripture that we see threaded all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we just pray that we would be a, a place of um, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, age diversity, gender diversity, language diversity, um, ability diversity, that, that we would be a place where we invite everyone, um, that we would be known um, for how we love like Jesus. So we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.